Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good morning to everyone. I guess I should start by saying that it's not going to be any surprise that uh, my presentation is going to be a little bit partial in favor of my country. You know, you tend to focus and concentrate on what is your interest, and you try to promote this and present it. Uh, in fact, there's, I always start with a little anecdote, and I will begin with one that will tell you how people will focus on what their own interest is. This anecdote is about this small vendor of uh, tamales in Mexico City. He had a little cart in front of a big building. And every day, this, this well-dressed executive would come out of the building, approach the cart. cart had a big sign that says, tamales, five pesos. He would get a five-peso coin, put it on the cart, and leave without getting the tamal. And he would do that every day. Well, about three weeks later, one day, he comes in, puts the coin, he's about to leave, and the vendor says, sir, can I have a word with you? He says, well, you took your little time, huh? You're going to ask me why I come in and put the five pesos and not take the tamales. Says, no, I want to tell you tamales are now ten pesos each. <laughs> so, see, if you concentrate on what your interest is, <clears throat> it might come out in a different way, you know? So, we are, we are here to talk about subjects that have been in the headlines for a long time, but I don't think that recently, lately, there's anything uh, in the newspapers about Mexico that doesn't have to do with influenza. So, as a kind of an introduction, very apropos to what I'm going to be talking about, I am going to mention what is considered in Latin America the shortest story ever told. And it's a wonderful, wonderful masterpiece of uh, short uh, storytelling that consists of one phrase, the whole story. It says, when I woke up, the monster was still there. That's it. Now, it gets you thinking, what happened before, uh, how you, you create your own story with this kind of a finishing touch. And I'm here to tell you that after the whole influenza problem, we woke up and the monster was still there. Uh, nothing has been totally fixed. We still have the problem of violence. We still are going to face an economic crisis. And we are beginning a new relationship with a new administration in the United States. Now, Ed, let me just touch briefly on the, on the relationship with the new administration because there have been very positive signs from our point of view uh, of uh, kind of a warming up of the contacts between our chiefs of state. They're both young. They are both approximately the same generation. And they apparently see eye to eye very well. One thing I have to mention right away, because it was wonderful, was the visit of uh, Hillary Clinton to Mexico, where she recognized that the problem of drug trafficking is not a problem of Mexico. It's a bilateral problem, and that we have this situation in which we have to try to work together closely. It doesn't do any good. I think I mentioned this in your class uh, once, because it's always in my mind. It doesn't do any good to follow what I saw one day in a cartoon in one of the Mexican uh, uh, political uh, magazines. It showed the border with a big, big wall, 
Uncle Sam on the one side and a little charro on the other side. And they were yelling each other over the wall no, to each other. Uh, of course, the, the Uncle Sam was saying, you're corrupt. And the charro was saying, you're a junkie. It doesn't help. I mean, is, is finger pointing what is going to be solving all these problems? No. If we keep thinking that the border is a wall that divides governments, we have to remember it doesn't do that with criminals. They seem to thrive on, on, on over-border uh, commerce. So this is a problem that, again, we have to face together. Now, what has been happening over there? Well, there's been a war going on between the different groups. Why? Why? Because President Calderon decided not to look the other way. I mean, the solution, according to our president, is, is not just kicking the can down the street. It's not just saying, ah, the problem will always be here. We are not really uh, uh, getting a lot of uh, understanding from the other side of the border, so why, why bother? He said, no, we are going to fight this, and we are going to fight until we defeat them. Okay, the first step was really clean up law enforcement, and he found out, wow, it was very difficult to clean up. It's, it was already everywhere. I mean, this, this cancer was getting everywhere. A local policeman in the city where I come from, Culiacán, earns the equivalent of $500 a month. And that same policeman was getting $5,000 a month kickback from the, the, the lords, the, the, the drug lords. How can you compete with that? Second big problem they found out. The police was totally underhanded. They didn't have the firepower. Well, the drug Traffickers bring bazookas and hand grenades and, 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 and grenade launchers, and, and the police has guns, handguns. My, my father used to say, it's not true, but it's always kind of descriptive about the local policeman, that he was underpaid and that he had to sell the gun to buy bullets. <laughs> that was how bad the thing it was. <laughs> so this was only, they left us only one choice, get the army involved. Get the armed forces involved. Because they are the only ones that have the firepower to do this. But, and this is not being covered very much on, on the press, the armed forces are involved under the command of the civil authorities, law enforcement authorities. They do not act on their own. They do not go and do any operations unless it is ordered and supervised by the law enforcement civil authorities. And what happened is that, well, you know, you, you kick the beehive and you're going to get a lot of uh, bees coming against you. It happened. But out of the almost 6,000 homicides that happened last year in Mexico, practically 90% were war between the different groups. And there's a very good indicator that proves this. One third of those, those fellows that were killed the cadavers were never claimed by anybody. I mean, nobody came to say, hey, give us the, 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 the remains to go bury them. Nobody. This is really a war between the two groups. It is happening now and then that some bystander will, will, will get hurt. But take it to the, same, the, the, the next step. Every time there's some kind of a homicide with high-power weapons, immediately we say, oh, the drugs the war is going on there. And it's not always true. What it is true is that now any second-rate hoodlum has an AK-47. And they use them. In my hometown, 
I'll give you the example of what happened. This, this boy that appears in his car, he was uh, shot to death, and there was a big sign saying, because he was against the Zetas, which is one of the big, big enforcement groups of the drug traffickers. Obviously, the boy was involved, so there's not really much to investigate. But the father of the boy said, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. He was not involved. I can prove that he was not involved. You have to investigate what happened. He forced the local authorities to get involved, to really investigate, and one month later, we found out it was a crime of passion. The wife was seeing another man, and this other man killed him. And he made it look like it was something that had to do with drugs. And we, we, we were falling into this, they're saying, oh, yeah, don't investigate, it's just, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever saw it, but there was one episode of Monk in which he uh, investigates a crime in Tijuana, and the policeman says, it's the drugs, don't do nothing. It, we were falling into that. We were really actually saying, you know, every homicide that happens in the country is the, 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 the war on drugs. It's not true. There are homicides all the time. There has been killings all the time. In certain states of the country, have had it particularly harsh. Now, when you start dividing the country and uh, studying right where the big drug wars are happening, you begin concentrating, and then you realize that if you count four cities, just four cities in the country, you're going to be covering 80% of the killings. Four cities, including mine, unfortunately. I am from the city of Culiacán where the whole thing began. They say that the, the drug problem in Mexico began after World War II because we were producing poppy in order to sell to the U.S. So to, for the production of morphine for, for the soldiers in, in World War II. And when the war ended and it became illegal to do that, they just continued. So we have a, a problem in four specific cities, and every time we have that, the army has to come in. You know what happened in Ciudad Juarez? It was getting out of hand. Well, the army came in, and it stopped almost completely. It's just that if you stop it here, it'll pop up there. It's not a matter that will be easily curbed. And I heard a lot of people saying to me, well, you need a Colombia plan. You know, the Colombia plan worked out very well. No? Well, really, violence really did almost stop in Colombia. But what about drug uh, trafficking? Did it really stop? Where is cocaine coming from? Still is coming from Colombia. So is that really that successful just to say you stopped violence? That's one part of it. Violence is not going to stop as long as we have a war going on. And we have a war going on against these people. And uh, it doesn't help that sometimes the immediate coverage, I understand that, what would you think that would be the headline if on the one hand you have in one corner someone who was knifed and died, and on the other hand you have in the other corner someone who was shot with 100 bullets and then beheaded? Which one we're going to get the headline? They're both homicides. But it's violence, it's, it's this, this terrible thing that is happening that has created all this. Now, I'm here to tell you, it's not true that there's no control of it. It's not true that it's getting out of hand. And it's not true that it's increasing. It is not increasing. It is diminishing. But it's not over either. And that's where we have, need help. This is where we have to ask our partners. This is what the U.S. is, our partners, in this fight. We need three things from the U.S., specifically. One is help us stop the flow of guns, particularly powerful guns. Now. We are not fooling ourselves. 
If the guns get to Afghanistan, they're going to get to Culiacan. That's, uh, we know that. You're not going to stop at 100%, but at least make sure that we don't get all these people with cannons and, 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 and grenade launchers. Second point, we need to stop the flow of cash. The drugs are sold here, but the money ends up over there, and it goes in bulk. We're talking about trucks full of dollar bills, $100 bills. And third, precursors. We keep thinking about cocaine, but that's not the main problem now. Methamphetamines is a big problem now. And it cannot be produced unless we get in Mexico, imported from somewhere, some precursors, particularly pseudoephedrine. And what we have been doing is we've been looking always south. If you are at the border, everything looking south. We are looking south because we're starting trying to stop drugs coming from South America and, 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 and right there, cocaine particularly, we, have, we want to stop it before it reaches the border. You're looking at the south because you're trying to stop those, those drugs from crossing the border, along with also, of course, migration, that is another problem. But we never look north. And it's time to look north. Because those three things that we are asking from the U.S. can only be done if you look north when things are going to Mexico. Now, that's one thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit sneaky when I talk about this because I surprise people. And the other day, somebody asked me, but, but you have to admit that 6,000 homicides is a lot. And I said, no, it's 17,000. He said, really? Oh, I'm sorry. I said, that's in the U.S. <laughs> and he said, what? Yeah, sure. Last year. 17,000 homicides happened in the United States. Well, yeah, the population is different, sure. But it doesn't really help to have stereotypes like this. Mexico's violent in general. What if we tell our people, don't go to the U.S., particularly don't visit schools, because, you know, in schools they tend to kill people indiscriminately. Not everywhere, not every day. It doesn't really do any good to start uh, finger-pointing here and there. The other thing that I... Uh, of course, I'll, I'll be answering any questions if you, that you have about this. The other part that I wanted to mention also is the economy. Now here, I'm uh, going to be uh, probably acting as uh, reminding, re remembering uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, please bring me a one-armed economist. He said, because all the economist advices I have after the forecast, they end up by saying, on the other hand. <laughs> and I'm going to be doing that a lot. I'm sorry. I'm talking to the economy, you have to, you have to you know, balance this. All right. We are in the, in the middle of the crisis. Of course we are. We are in the middle of a recession. Yes, we are. And the reason for that, particularly in our case, is because we depend from the U.S. We are completely linked in our economy to the U.S. There is only one other country that buys more from the United States than Mexico. That's Canada. Nobody else. We don't sell more than China to you, but I don't think that should be something to, to be happy about. Last, heard I, last time I, I heard, you were only sending empty containers back to China, and you are sending more trade to Mexico than Germany and England combined. So we are linked. We are partners in the economy. And if you suffer, we suffer. On the other hand, ah, you see, I'm coming to that. There is no good time to, to face a recession. But we were better prepared than most countries. I'll tell you why. 
Well, first of all, we don't have a fiscal deficit. Now, I, every time I mention this, and, and honestly, I see kind of an envious look. <laughs> I wish we would say that. Second point, our banks are sound. And the reason for that is we already had our meltdown. In 1995, we went through an enormous problem. We had to bail out the banks. And then once they were sound, we sold them to international organizations, banking organizations that are doing very well. There are two Spanish banks, one international bank, one from Canada. They're all working very well. And third, we didn't have a real estate uh, bubble. So, because of those three things, we were much better prepared to face the, the, the recession than many other countries. Still, because we depend on the, on the economy of the United States, we're suffering. And, but we weren't doing so badly until the end of last year, because, well, the president could just increase public spending without any big problem. No deficit there. The president created uh, an infrastructure program, a temporary, uh, a temporary job creation program. It was going well. And then we got sick. We got influenza. And that's really the most terrible blow of all. Uh, it's very difficult to, to, to handle something like this. And I, uh, Let me use this example. There was this commercial that I think is, is very appropriate to mention here. There are two ladies talking, and one of them says to the other, you have bugs in your house. Says, no, I don't. But I saw the exterminators coming in. Well, that's why I don't have bugs in my house. Well, we got the problem. Oh, you got a very serious problem with influenza. No, we don't. But you paralyze the country. That's why we don't have a big problem with influenza. This is, this is the way it is. I mean, once you do what is necessary to, to, to face the problem, that action suddenly becomes the negative part. Don't go to Mexico. Don't bring things from Mexico. Don't import pork from Mexico, etc., etc. What happened right now, and this is really tragic for us, Cancun is less than 50% occupancy in the hotels. Unheard of. Cancun has always been over 80% occupancy year-round. So, what happened with the, the, the cruise lines? They stopped going. Cozumel doesn't have anything else except cruise lines coming in. Our economy now really is going to be suffering. Now we got a problem. So we didn't really worry too much before, but now we do. Now we have to recreate confidence. We have to uh, convince people that used to go almost automatically every year to Mexico to continue going. And probably the only way to do that, I'm almost sure this is when, when's going to start the recovery, is our people. Mexicans in the United States, every year, as soon as classes are over, take off for Mexico. It's not going to, not only going to bring some very necessary currency, because they go there and spend money, but it is going to show that they went and came back and they didn't get sick. There wasn't any problem with that. That's the, the only thing we're waiting for right now, because, of course, classes are going to end at the end of June, and then we begin the high season, and then millions of people across the border are going to visit their relatives. That's probably the key to the whole thing. We don't think, we don't want, of course, uh, to stop talking about trade with the United States. We want to continue doing that. We got, the, as if we didn't have enough problems, the difficulty of the trucks that are not going to be allowed to come across. We insist uh, that's wrong. There's an agreement, there's a treaty that was signed, there's some commitments that were, that were agreed to, and then they stopped. 
And of course, it doesn't help us to have to put some duty on uh, items imported from the United States because most of those items that, that create difficulties with trade going up back and forth, and this is what our livelihood comes from, trade. It, it, it's not only that you have a commitment with the trucks coming across, it, that's important, of course it is, but there's also a practical thing. You have any idea how many trucks cross the border every day? 75,000. Every day. You know how much it costs for the trucks to come across, unload the Mexican truck, load the American truck, and then keep going? The whole thing, the whole operation, $26 billion a year. Now, is that reasonable? Why would anybody be spending that amount of money? Why just throwing the money away when, when there's, a, there's a commitment signed legally by this country to allow the trucks to come in? It's not a very friendly gesture. We understand, as our ambassador said, Congress this, this. was trying to, in, between the lines saying it wasn't President Obama, it was, it was Congress. But whatever it is, our truck drivers in Mexico think of the U.S. and the U.S. government in general. So this, that doesn't help. We are hoping that it's not going to happen, that because of the recession, the ugly head of protectionism will come up. And uh, there's a very easy and I think very uh, handful, uh, handy argument with this. You mean the U.S. is going to suddenly change and go against free trade as a principle? I don't think so. I don't think that it, I mean, it's been forever that free trade has been a very major part of foreign policy for the U.S. I don't think that's going to change, again, in principle. But it could be that there are some items that are not uh, the, the total picture that might suffer. But that's why negotiations are there. That's what we can do. I mean, in, in, in my home state, for instance, my home state is, is the most important agricultural producer in the country, Sinaloa. But it's two kinds of production. On the one hand, you count the hands again. On the one hand, we produce fruit and vegetables that are picked by hand, create jobs, and then they export it to the United States. Free trade helps these people have access to the American market, and they're very happy with NAFTA. But on the other hand, <laughs> on the south of the state, they produce grain, and we cannot compete with the U.S. in grain. So. They're not very happy with NAFTA. Well, this doesn't mean that we are going to denounce the treaty, and we're going to say the treaty is not good. As all treaties, as all of this, there are good things and there are bad things, on the one hand and on the other hand. So the only way to, to, to deal with this is to do it in a comprehensive way. It is, in general terms, acceptable that free trade is good. Yes, it is, and I think we should continue. So there you have a, more or less the diagram of what the, I wanted to talk to you about today. I'm sure you have specific questions about uh, each and every one of these items. We are not pessimistic. Uh, President Calderon has been fighting very hard not to be cornered into uh, a lot of newspapers do this in, in, in Mexico. You're not telling us the truth, President Calderon. Tell us how bad is it. Wait, 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 wait. If you see a tornado coming, do you really lose time predicting how much damage is going to do, or do you prepare for the tornado? It's, it doesn't do any good to just uh, compete and see who's going to give us the most precise estimate of the damage. 
Wouldn't it be better to prepare for the damage, to try to avoid the damage? That's what it's been trying to do. And it, nobody is going to say that this is totally perfect. We have elections coming in the summer, and it's going to be very difficult, very heated. In fact, the, the, the polls show, surprise, PRI, the old party, is ahead again. They might win majority in Congress again. Wow. Wasn't that the corrupt thing? It wasn't the, the party that was there for 70 years. Nobody wanted it. They were not Democrats. Well, they seem to be doing something right because they're coming back. And funny enough, the other day they had their meeting, the, 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 the party's meeting, and they were devising a strategy of attack for the campaigns. And the first thing they said is, all right, but don't attack the president because he has a tremendous acceptance rate. Attack the other fellows. Attack Congress. Attack everybody else. And, well, I'll finish by telling you that they decided, this is something I heard in the Philippines a long time ago, but I always find it very cute. They decided to follow this, this, this uh, kind of line of, line of thought. You know, if you're in favor of something, you're pro. If you're against something, you're con. So what's the opposite of progress? Congress. <laughs> I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, we took California by force. Some of us would like to give it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that one day there was this, uh, this uh, comedian in Mexico that was asked, would you like to take back Texas? says, yes, we would like to. Because it's, the, the, the Americans took all the roads, all the freeways. And would you like to take California? Just Disneyland, he said. <laughs> you hold your hands up so that Katie can see you. And then... Oh, yes, there's a mic there. Mm -hmm. um, good morning, Mr. Ambassador. Hello. I have a question on the flip side of that. Um, with the economic integration of Mexico and the United States, and my point of view on the, the people that live in what used to be northern Mexico, how much better they are off economically per person, right? Do you feel that uh, there will ever be a, a political integration between the United States and, and Mexico? I mean, do you think that the individual Mexican states would ever vote to join the United States Union? Well, uh, let me put it this way. What I don't think is possible is to stop integration. In other words, uh, I hear a lot of people say, no, no, all we want is free trade, and we'll stop right there. I don't think you can stop it. You can, it can happen with controls. It can happen uh, with uh, some order and uh, supervised by governments, or it can happen by businesses integrating themselves. I think it will happen. Now, what we have to think about is how far reaching should this be? Should we follow the European example? Uh, in the world, there is no other example of full integration. And the, the, the stages that they follow are reasonable, and we should all try to think, if we are going to integrate, let's follow those. If we do that, Step by step, the next step after free trade will be a customs union. We are far away from that. But if we get that, then we have to build out to a common market. There we start thinking about free movement of people, not just capital. We're far away from that also. And finally, political integration. That's the way they did it. I think it's doable, but we have to work very hard at it, and particularly Right now, on both sides of the border, there is mistrust. Uh, I hear politicians on this side saying the Mexicans want to take over. 
because they're invading us little by little. And then in Mexico, I hear saying, no, all the U.S. really wants is for Mexico to be the 51 state. It's not really discussing possibilities. It's not really discussing the, 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 the advantages of integration. It's really creating opposition right away because you jump from now to the political integration. It is a lot of things to do before we even talk about that. As I mentioned, if I bring right now the possibility of uh, creating a common market that would allow the free movement of people, it's going to be lost. It's going to be defeated. We can't even get an immigration reform approved. So I don't think it should be a jump like that. It should be gradual. We should be discussing it, though. Uh, a customs union is hard enough, but it should be the next step, and we are not even talking about it. Good morning, Mr. Ambassador. Good morning. Um, both of our countries uh, are built on the rule of law, both democracies. And I've never quite understood, since the United States has laws regarding legal immigration, it, maybe I'm reading the wrong things or listening to the wrong news, but I don't see a concerted effort by Mexico to help the United to, to help the United States to curb the illegal immigration and perhaps change it into legal immigration where other people come into our country. Okay. It is not really up to the country that sends the people to change the laws of the country that receives people. The United States has immigration laws, yes. The United States has in the books a system by which you can come in legally, yes. But is it working really? No. I'll tell you what the big, big problem right now is. There are many of them, but the one that worries me the most is if you're a permanent resident, legal resident, and you want to bring your family with you, the, the, the book says that you can, but it will take you 10 years to bring them in. In other words, the family is going to be separated for 10 years while you wait for that. That's probably the line that they refer to when they say, you have to go to the end of the line. Oh, wait a minute, the line is, keeps growing. It's not really getting shorter. It's getting larger, longer. And if you, even if you go to the, to the American, specifically American point of view of immigration, you're going to find that the system is broken. And, well, let's think of uh, an American boy that went on vacation to Guadalajara for the summer, and he met a beautiful girl over there, and she's on a middle class, upper middle class family, and she has a visa to come here as a tourist. She comes to visit him later. Romance increases and goes on, and finally they decide to want to get married. So he goes to Guadalajara, and he goes to the American consul and says, I want to do things the right way. I come to you to, to tell me how to do this. He says, okay, you want to marry a Mexican national? Very well. First of all, we're going to cancel her visa. She cannot go to the U.S. anymore until you finish the whole process. So wait a minute, I marry and I leave her here in Guadalajara and go alone? Sorry, that's what the law says. Isn't there any other way? No, there's no other way. Then the man comes back here and he talks to someone who went through the same thing. He says, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. Does she have a visa? Yeah. Bring it here. Marry her here. And then apply for her, change the status. And they're going to tell you, she cannot leave the country while you go through all this. And she's going to be with you at home. Which is the right way, legal way? The first one. What is the irregular way? The second one. This is where the system is 
totally broken. We're not talking only about undocumented people. We're talking about the whole system. It's not really a practical, logical system. And it needs to be fixed. Now, we're willing to work with the United States in another matter. The whole problem of people coming here has two real big halves. And practically, no one is talking about the half that I'm going to tell you about. The one in the other hand, remember? Okay, you have about eight, from eight to 12 million undocumented people living here, depending on who you do believe. No one really knows how many, but let's say 12 million people here. One problem is, of course, that these people are not going to disappear. These people, are, there's, there's a push to say, let's find a way for them to legalize themselves and stay. All right. But we're not, we're not touching is the fact that there's an enormous group of people that come here temporarily. They've been doing it for years and years and years. They come here, they work in the summer. As, as soon as they get calls in Chicago, they go back. We documented that the traffic going that way as Mother Day's approaches in May is larger than coming this way. But that process, which was natural flow and counterflow, was obstacleized by putting better controls at the border. In other words, no one comes here unless they have money. It's, it's, it's totally false, the, the, the point that they say that people that don't have a job come here. No. People that come here have a job, but they can earn more money here. And they need money because when they get to the border, they're going to pay someone to help them cross. Now, with better controls at the border, two things happen. First one is, it's more expensive to buy these services from these people at the border. So it's becoming uneconomical to pay these people and then come and work three months when you hardly have enough money to pay the fellow. Second problem is, it's getting tougher to grow across. Uh, that's why we have so many deaths at the desert, because they're trying to find ways where there is not so much control. Well, many of these men decided, you know what, I'm going to tough it up here. Instead of going back and coming back next year, I'll just wait here and see what I can do. I'll cut the grass or move to other parts of the U.S. where it's not so cold, something like that. That's why the number of people living here began to increase. Second problem, on the other hand. The family used to receive this man on Christmas and Mother's Day and all those days and, and spend it together, and now this person is not going back. So the family decides what? To follow him, to come here to stay with the father that the kids miss so much. And suddenly, by having better controls at the border, you have more undocumented people here. It's a little perverse effect of this, what is happening. Unfortunately, only the real experts in demographics, anthropology, sociology, really understand this very complex phenomenon. What we get is headlines. No? Uh, they take jobs. The undocumented people take jobs away. Uh, you remember that I mentioned this to, the, to his students. I said, guys, have you ever sent a telegram? They didn't know what a telegram was, by the way. And I said, well, why is there a company called Western Union in existence? Wasn't that a telegram company? Why didn't it disappear when the telegrams went under? Because of remittances. The only thing Western Union does now is take the money from the undocumented and send it to the countries, not, not just Mexico. In the Philippines, I went to a little island called Bacolod, and the only thing that I recognized immediately was the big sign of Western Union right there. <laughs> Hundreds and thousands of jobs were saved by this process instead of being lost. So there's always the other hand. 
I don't know if it, I, I address your question. I'd like to stay on the immigration sure. topic for a second sure. because I, I think one of the problems in this country on immigration is there's not a consensus. There isn't. And it's not necessarily Democrat or Republican, so there's not a consensus. Is there a consensus in, in Mexico about what would be an appropriate no. solution? Unfortunately, no. I'm being very honest with you. Yeah. I'm being very honest with you, very candid with you. I'm not going to, to give you just a slogans and phrases. When we face the problem of our people in the United States, we have one attitude. It's a, it's a country, it's practically unanimous what we want. Treat them well, give them a chance to legalize themselves, uh, all of that. But when we look south, and we see that we are a country, probably the only country that has the three immigration phenomena. We send people, we receive people, and we are a transit country. Those other two, receiving people and transit, are totally different. Because then we are the victims of this invasion, so-called. And in Chiapas, it's almost uh, a natural thing that every year, Guatemalans come across the border to pick up coffee, and then they go back. If we start putting controls at the border, what is going to happen? They're going to come in, pick up the coffee, and stay. And then we have them transit. All Central Americans that come to, go, come to the United States go through Mexico. Unfortunately, we haven't really devised a policy that is equal in both sides. It's not there. We haven't really decided what we want to do in order to cooperate, if we ever had the, the, the chance, with some kind of a bilateral agreement. We have one. Remember the Bracero program? It ended in 64. The Bracero program would bring people to work here certain time with a contract, with certain services, uh, uh, medical insurance and all that, and then they would go back at the end of the work. And it was denounced at the time because they said it's not stopping undocumented migration. Well, it, it wasn't device for that. It was only a way to bring people temporarily. In particular in agriculture, in particular in California, there's no way out. Still no way for someone who lives in Kansas City and got, got, got fired, he doesn't have unemployment right now, that he's going to take off to California to pick up tomatoes. It's not going to happen. So, these things, unfortunately, uh, are not yet uh, shaped in a, in a proper way. All during the administration of Mr. Fox, we, the, the newspapers kept talking about some mythical immigration agreement. What immigration agreement? When was there an immigration agreement discussed? Who proposed it? Where? There was never any chance of an immigration agreement. There was a proposal for an immigration reform within the United States. But even that cannot be done in an international way because what? You're going to arrange your, your immigration with us? Just us? What about the other countries? The other day, and UNT created a little bit of a buzz when I said, you know that there's 150,000 undocumented Canadians? Maybe one Obama said sitting next to you. How, do you how can you tell? <laughs> how can you distinguish that? There's Filipinos, there's Chinese, there's, it cannot be an immigration agreement. It has to be an internal matter in the United States. That's the only way. And we are not really going to be influencing this except by saying, guys, you need any help in understanding the immigration problem, we could probably help you. We have uh, think tanks along the border, particularly the, the Colegio de la Frontera Norte in, in Tijuana, 
that has done excellent job in really studying how this flow and counterflow goes. So again, I'm sorry to say it because really it makes me feel a little bit ashamed, but we don't really have a, a policy that we can say is total, integrated, comprehensive. No. If we look north, we think one thing. If we look south, we think in a different way. And people are just kind of blind to this. They don't understand it. I, I, have, a, I have to fight about this all the time because when I was counsel at the border, 100 meters away, they were doing all the things that I was complaining against on this side of the border. I was telling you, Sheriff, you, you, you cannot stop someone only because they don't have any documents. Policemen exactly the same thing with the Salvadorians on the other side. This, this is, cannot be. You cannot be so uh, uh, biased that you only think about you want your people to be treated correctly over there, but you're not going to treat anybody who's a foreigner correctly over here. It has to do both. And that is still a job that I don't know who is going to lead to get in Mexico. Because every time you raise your hand and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. If we are going to protest because of the bad treatment of our uh, immigrants in the United States, we also are going to protest about the Central Americans here. They immediately say, ah, you sold out to the gringos, huh? <laughs> and I'm hovered. I'm, I'm, I have a lot of problems with that. <laughs> they immediately think that I'm sympathetic to the, the, the land of my grandfather, huh? that I'm doing this only because I, I prefer the, the, the U.S. And it's not true. It's, it's, it's simply that we should have a comprehensive policy. We don't have it. Thank you. I have a, a, an overview question sure. that uh, is interesting. That uh, because the Mexico for a lot of us is, is, a, is kind of a confusion to us. Uh, as I say, we're from Canada originally, and the, the parallel is kind of interesting because we're both uh, adjacent to this great market uh, here, when, and Canada does take a benefit of it, and somehow Mexico doesn't as much. Uh, the parallel between the two is rather interesting because Mexico has better weather, better than Canada. Resources both have great resources. Mexico is self-sufficient in petroleum, as I understand it. Uh, the, the, the people we see that are here from Mexico, whether they're here legally or not, are, have great work ethic. So the community has great work ethic. There's something missing that should make Mexico a great country. And, and I don't know what it is. I don't, know, I don't think it's public relations. I, Here's a silly, silly suggestion. Your democracy doesn't seem to be working for some reason. Somebody doesn't seem to have enough power to make things right, whether it's military or police, whatever. What you probably need is a benevolent dictator to take real control and put down somebody really, somebody, somebody that takes control and, and, and gets rid of all the corruption, gets rid of all the, uh, the illegals, and gets that country back. It should be great. It should be a great country. Well, I totally agree that, that something is going wrong. Uh, obviously, we haven't done as well as uh, we should have been. Part of the problem that we have in, in regards with the uh, relationship with the United States vis-a-vis -vis the one from Canada to the United States is we have this big, big uh, stain on our bilateral relations because we were once invaded by this country and we lost half our territory to this country. A lot of Mexicans are still thinking that the Americans are coming for the other half. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's always hesitant. You see, you are allies of the United States. Canadians are allies of the United States. We've never been allies to the United States. We work together, yes, World War II. We sent some uh, pilots to the Philippines uh, to, to fly an, an American uh, airplane. But we never became allies because we were always fearing that one day, if the interests of the United States so called for, they would just come in and take over. 
It's nonsense, but it's still there. There's, 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 there's mistrust. And I guess in, when, in, in good part, the problem is reflected on the territory. The northern part of Mexico is developing much faster, tremendously, compared to the south. In fact, there's a cruel phrase over there that says, people in, the, in, in Nuevo Leon see to the north. People in Chiapas see to heaven. No hope. It's true. It's unfortunately the, the, the business side of the whole thing was right there. It's always been right there. In fact, it's nonsense to talk about fear of the U.S. taking over when we had, for more than a century, 80% of our trade with the U.S. anyway. The only difficulty there, un until NAFTA came in, is that 80% of our trade with the U.S., but we represented 6% of the whole trade of the U.S. 6%, a neighbor. Because we were protectionists and we were afraid that they would come in and they would take over all of our companies and one, one day they would take over the whole country. So it is true. It has been a kind of a love-hate relationship that hasn't resolved itself even until now. And when you touch on, on oil, you get it right there. <clears throat> oil has the last, it's the last frontier. It's the last thing that we don't want the Americans to take over. It's, the Americans should respect oil because oil is ours, it's nation's property. Well, we are importing gasoline and diesel from the U.S. We send the oil to the U.S. to be refined and then we import gasoline and diesel. This is absurd. We are exporting jobs to the United States with this. Ah, but the oil is ours. See, this is, this is a, a, a sign of pride that is ours. We do have to change. It, it is uh, an ongoing discussion. There are some people in Mexico that says democracy is the best system, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be successful economically. There are other things you have to do along with democracy. Then uh, there are people that say there, well, we really didn't have that bad of, uh, of the democracy except on the electoral side. I don't know how you divide one thing from the other, but that, that's been said. Now, we have alternate, alternation. Now, the, the, the party that, that won last time not necessarily going to win next time. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. But did the system change? Or we just began to give a chance to other parties to win? This is where the big question comes. I sustain that the, the system has not changed. In other words, no, it doesn't matter who comes into power, they work within the same system. We have to reform the whole system. And that is very difficult because politically it has a high price. I mean, what do you want to do when you have only two TV networks in the whole country? Only two. Well, you have to break the monopoly. As a politician, can you afford to go against the TV stations when there's a campaign coming? It's not easy. And that, along with that, there's many other things in the economy that unfortunately have not worked out the way we wanted it, particularly monopolies and the unions. Unfortunately, we let them grow too much and they controlled too much and, and they became uh, embedded in the, in the political system and they have a tremendous power. That has to change. But if you ever go against them, remember, they're not going to vote for you. So uh, it's not easy to, to, to do. We are, we, little by little we're doing it. And what I don't like about it is that it's only happening because of globalization. Because you cannot hide anymore. You cannot uh, uh, stop Mexicans from seeing how things are done in another country, how things are better in another country, and then come back and say, why don't we do it that way? Little by little, people are beginning to get this, this idea that 
It's nonsense to keep saying that we're nationalistic and we're going to do things our own way. No, 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 wait. We're going to do things the way, the best way to make them work out, no matter where they come from. Now, I don't like what the Chinese says. A good cat is the one that catches mice. If it doesn't catch mice, it doesn't do any good. Well, the system is the same way. If we are going to develop by doing A, B, C, let's do A, B, C. And then you get the resistance of the ones that have been doing some other way or the ones that got rich doing it that way and they're going to be powerful and going to be hard. But it's happening very gradually. It is happening. Now the only good news we have right now, for instance, is that we just surpassed China as <coughs> the most inexpensive country to do business for the first time. Everybody kept saying, no, oh, China was, will always be the, the, the destination of investment because it's, uh, doing business there is so, so cheap. Well, because the economy is moving, income is coming up also. And now suddenly salaries are not as inexpensive as they were before. Well, some advantages will come out of all this. But we do have to have an alliance with the United States. And probably, coming back to your question, the only way to do it is by integrating. I am all in favor of integration. We have to find ways. It's not going to be easy. But if the Germans and the French that were killing each other for generations did it, we can do it too. Getting back to the immigration issue, sure. um, I think there's a common perception, and I don't know whether it's valid or not, that one of the main reasons people come here is because they want U.S. citizenship. How do you think it might change the dialogue if the people who are here that are undocumented at this point are given a path to legalization but will be prohibited from have, ever having citizenship? If they come forward and say, I'm, I've come here illegally, I'm coming forward, I want to have legalization, understanding that it would prohibit them from ever having citizenship, would that change the dialogue? No, I, the perception is not right. <clears throat> we actually had to change our constitution because people were not naturalizing themselves, were forever permanent residents. They claimed they didn't do it because by naturalizing themselves in the U.S., they lost Mexican nationality, and they didn't want that. So we changed our constitution and said, okay, go ahead and naturalize yourselves in the U.S., no problem. You are not going to lose Mexican nationality. You will keep it, and if you ever want to use it, just come back, it's your country. By doing this, we thought we found the key. We want them to naturalize themselves, because that way, they have political power. Right now, I'm, I'm a very interested part in, in all this because we have 50 Mexican consulates in the United States trying to help our people with their problems. If they become citizens, they help themselves. They, we don't have to be involved so much. But guess what? It didn't work. They still are naturalizing themselves. I don't know why. We keep, we keep pushing this. They say, you don't be afraid. You're not going to lose your nationality. Nope. They didn't do it. And then the, the worst part about it, I guess, is that the ones that do naturalize themselves, they don't vote. So what was the purpose of the whole thing? I mean, we, we were trying to get them to, to empower themselves by, by, by having political rights. They don't vote. So it is a tremendous frustration to us that we do all this to try to pave the way so they can become citizens, and they are not. We still have an enormous amount of permanent residents, legal residents, that refuse to naturalize themselves. Particularly if they have kids born here, they don't worry anymore. The kids are going to take over. 
The only ones that really in, get interested in naturalizing themselves are the ones that are going to jump from the system that I've described that is broken. In other words, if you're going to bring, you're a permanent resident, you want to bring your wife here, it's going to take you 10 years. But if you're an American citizen, it's going to take you two years. So then they do naturalize themselves only because they want to bring the family. But unfortunately, it's not true. It's not happening. I don't understand, and we don't understand in general, what is the problem. Because again, we we don't the, the, the obstacle. They kept saying, no, 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 I don't want to cease being Mexican. No, you're, you have Mexican nationality is permanent now. You keep it forever. And still, the rate of naturalization, it's very low. So, no, the argument is really not true. It's, it's not that they want to he- come here to become American citizens. They want to he- come here because they dream of the American way of life, the American dream. And most of all, my friend David worked as a waiter in a restaurant in Cuernavaca, and then he came to work as a waiter in Las Vegas. You know what the difference is? Now he's sending money to the family, he has a very nice car, has a very nice apartment, doing exactly the same thing that he was doing over there, where he couldn't meet the necessities. As long as there's this disparity in income, seven times more here than there for an unskilled job, people are going to come. One of the policy proposals to fight crime and corruption in the United States is to raise the tax rate on the rich, pay police officers more money, and then hold them to a higher standard. For example, a police officer could make $200,000 a year, but if he were caught stealing a pack of chewing gum, he would be fired. Do you think this would be a policy that would be applicable to other countries in the world? We, we have a big problem, as I mentioned at the beginning, of the low income of the local police. And I'm not talking about the federal police, I'm not talking about the state police, I'm talking about municipalities. Because that's where the problem is. Municipalities have very little income, uh, very little form of taxation except property tax. And that means that they don't have a lot of money to pay the police. And that means that the drug traffickers, who uh, might be perverse but they're not fools, they knew where the weak link was, and they began giving money to these this people locally. And unfortunately, it created a concert that is almost everywhere now. Uh, and, and Ciudad Juarez, they had to fire 44 policemen that didn't pass the dub test. They were using drugs. 44, one day. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, of course, if you give him a reasonable income, if you give him some job security, if you give him... Uh, health insurance, they will be less uh, vulnerable to the impact of the money that comes from corruption. But it doesn't happen overnight. You have to create, first of all, a very professional police, well-trained, moral standards, ethical standards, well-embedded in them. That takes also a lot of time. We, right now, are facing a very hard time because we're just trying to create a new local police force. And... uh, on the one hand, again, the two hands thing, on the one hand, the federal government cannot do it for the municipalities. They cannot order them. Those are different levels. Those are different uh, administration uh, status. But they can show them the way. And they can probably transfer some re- resources so they can do it. It is going to take a long effort, a hard, uh, a lot of work and a lot of time to do it. But you have to do it. The truth of the matter is, if you don't trust your policemen on, on your neighborhood, everything goes downhill immediately. Huh? 
Well, on the education issue, I, uh, I teach at a public school in the mid-cities, and we have large numbers of, uh, of Mexican citizens who, who come to us. And I was wondering if you could explain to me, the, in, in a nutshell, the public education system in Mexico. And, and the reason I ask is we have students who come to us in the 10th grade and haven't been in school for, for three years. And I'm wondering, is that common or... I mean, is that an unusual? It is. It's supposed to be unusual because by law, you have to go through primary and secondary school, and that's nine years together. So that's supposed to be the minimum that you have. It doesn't happen because probably the problem is enforcement. In other words, what we you're supposed to be in school when you are up to the age of 15 years, to put an example, but you didn't. Then what? You're going to put them in jail? You're going to punish the, the parents? Uh, what do you do? They ha really haven't found the putting in the law and then enforcing are two different things, two totally different things. Plus, the very isolated areas have no schools. They have to travel all the way down from the high mountains to go to school in some places. That's also a problem. If you see the urban areas, it's getting to be very similar to what is happening here. Practically 97% of kids in urban areas go through the legal mandatory nine years of education minimum. But outside from that, we have to, to resort to things like we're doing right here in Dallas. I have already 10 different uh, community plazas, we call them, which are libraries and schools where they teach adults to read and write. Because they come in... And they might know how to put their name, or they might recognize the name of Coca-Cola over there, but they don't really, they're not really uh, uh, alphabetized. And then we go beyond that. It's okay, you learn to read and write, and then you want to get your diploma from uh, grammar school? We can do it here. Funny enough, the whole thing began in jail. The first time we tried this was because there's all this population of people in jail doing nothing, and we decided, why don't we just offer some kind of courses for them? And we found out that a lot of them were in, never finished grammar school. So since they're there, and it's, it's kind of easy to make them go to school, <laughs> uh, it began to work very well. Then we decided to, to open this up, and now it's going so well that we got, last Saturday we opened in, in Fort Worth, and in, in about two weeks we opened in Tyler, because we're trying to do this. It, it shows, of course, what you were saying. They didn't finish grammar school. Why? They're supposed legally to be mandatory to finish grammar school, but they didn't. Maybe they moved here when they were kids. I don't know. Whatever the situation is, enforcement is our problem right there. And as soon as we can f uh, say proudly that we have offered services of education, even in the most remote village, then we can start enforcing. Otherwise, it's our own fault. And then the dropout rate of Hispanics in this country... Oh, it's tremendous. <laughs> tremendous. I think you can see why I was so excited to have Ambassador Enrique Hubbard. Thanks for being with us. Gracias, amigo. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.